Chapter 5, Part 6 of The American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 5 Tendencies in American Pronunciation, Part 6. Language said Sace in 1879, does not consist of letters, but of sounds. And until this fact has been brought home to us, our study of it will be little better than an exercise of memory. The theory at that time was somewhat strange to English grammarians and etymologists, despite the investigations of A.J. Ellis and the massive lesson of Grimm's Law, their labors were largely wasted upon deductions from the written word. But since then, chiefly under the influence of continental philologists, and particularly of the Dane J.O.H. Jesperson, they have turned from orthographical futilities to the actual sounds of the tongue, and the latest and best grammar of it, that of sweet, is frankly based upon the spoken English of educated Englishmen not, remember, of conscious purists, but of the general body of cultivated folk. Unluckily, this new method also has its disadvantages. The men of a given race and time usually write a good deal alike, or, at all events, attempt to write alike, but in their oral speech there are wide variations. No two persons, says a leading contemporary authority upon English phonetics, pronounce exactly alike. Moreover, even the best speaker commonly uses more than one style. The result is that it is extremely difficult to determine the prevailing pronunciation of a given combination of letters at any time and place. The persons whose speech is studied pronounce it with minute shades of difference, and admit other differences according as they are conversing naturally or endeavoring to exhibit their pronunciation. Worse, it is impossible to represent a great many of these shades in print. Sweet, trying to do it, found himself in the end with a preposterous alphabet of 125 letters. Prince L. L. Bonaparte more than doubled this number, and Ellis brought it to 390. Other phonologists... English and Continental, have gone floundering into the same bog. The dictionary makers, forced to a far greater economy of means, are brought into obscurity. The difficulties of the enterprise, in fact, are probably unsurmountable. It is, as White says, almost impossible for one person to express to another, by signs, the sound of any word. Only the voice, he goes on, is capable of that. For the moment a sign is used, the question arises, what is the value of that sign? The sounds of words are the most delicate, fleeting, and inapprehensible things in nature. Moreover, the question arises as to the capability to apprehend and distinguish sounds on the part of the person whose evidence is given. Certain German orthoepists despairing of the printed page, have turned to the phonograph, and, 
there is a Deutsche Grammophon Gesellschaft in Berlin, which offers records of specimen speeches in a great many languages and dialects, including English. The phonograph has also been put to successful use in language teaching by various American correspondence schools. In view of all this, it would be hopeless to attempt to exhibit in print the numerous small differences between English and American pronunciation, for many of them are extremely delicate and subtle, and only their aggregation makes them plain. According to a recent and very careful observer, the most important of them do not lie in pronunciation at all, properly so called, but in intonation. In this direction, he says, one must look for the true characters of the English accent. I incline to agree with White that the pitch of the English voice is somewhat higher than that of the American, and that it is thus more penetrating. The nasal twang which Englishmen observe in the Vox Americana, though it has high overtones, is itself not high-pitched, but rather low-pitched, as all constrained and muffled tones are apt to be. The causes of that twang have long engaged phonologists, and in the main they agree that there is a physical basis for it, that our generally dry climate and rapid changes of temperature produce an actual thickening of the membranes concerned in the production of sound. We are, in brief, a somewhat snuffling people, and much more given to catars and corizas than the inhabitants of damp Britain. Perhaps this general impediment to free and easy utterance, subconsciously apprehended, is responsible for the American tendency to pronounce the separate syllables of a word with much more care than an Englishman bestows upon them. The American, in giving extraordinary six distinct syllables instead of the Englishman's grudging four, may be seeking to make up for his natural disability. Marsh, in his Lectures on the English Language, sought two other explanations of the fact. On the one hand, he argued that the Americans of his day read a great deal more than the English, and were thus much more influenced by the spelling of words. And on the other hand, he pointed out that our flora shows that the climate of even our northern states belongs to a more southern type than that of England, and that in southern latitudes articulation is generally much more distinct than in northern regions. In support of the latter proposition, he cited the pronunciation of Spanish, Italian, and Turkish, as compared with that of English, Danish, and German, rather unfortunate examples, for the pronunciation of German is at least as clear as that of Italian. Swedish would have supported his case far better. The Swedes debase their vowels and slide over their consonants even more markedly than the English. Marsh believed that there was a tendency among southern peoples to throw the accent back, and that this helped to bring out all the syllables. One finds a certain support for this notion in various American peculiarities of stress. Advertisement offers an example. The prevailing American pronunciation, despite incessant pedagogical counterblasts, 
puts the accent on the penult, whereas the English pronunciation stresses the second syllable. Paresis illustrates the same tendency. The English accent the first syllable, but, as Krapp says, American usage clings to the accent on the second syllable. There are again pianist, primarily, and telegrapher. The English accent the first syllable of each. We commonly accent the second. In temporarily, they also accent the first. We accent the third. Various other examples might be cited, but when one had marshaled them, their significance would be at once set at naught by four very familiar words, mama, papa, inquiry, and ally. Americans almost invariably accent each on the first syllable. Englishmen stress the second. For months during 1918, the publishers of the Standard Dictionary, advertising that work in the streetcars, explained that a lie should be accented on the second syllable, and pointed out that owners of their dictionary were safeguarded against the vulgarism of accenting it on the first. Nevertheless, this free and highly public instruction did not suffice to exterminate ally. I made note of the pronunciations overheard, with the word constantly on all lips. But one man of my acquaintance regularly accented the second syllable, and he was an eminent scholar, professionally devoted to the study of language. Thus, it is unsafe, here as elsewhere, to generalize too facilely, and particularly unsafe to exhibit causes with too much assurance. Man frage nicht warum, says Philip Karl Batman, der Sprachgebrauch lässt sich nur beobachten. But the greater distinctness of American utterance, whatever its genesis and machinery, is palpable enough in many familiar situations. The typical American accent, says Visitelli, is often harsh and unmusical, but it sounds all of the letters to be sounded and slurs, but does not distort the rest. An American, for example, almost always sounds the first L in fulfill. An Englishman makes the first syllable foo. An American sounds every syllable in extraordinary, literary, military, secretary, and the other words of the airy group. An Englishman never pronounces the A of the penultimate syllable. Kindness, with the D silent, would attract notice in the United States. In England, according to Jones, the D is very commonly, if not usually, omitted. Often, in America, commonly retains a full T. In England, it is actually and officially often. Let an American and an Englishman pronounce program, me. Though the Englishman retains the long form of the last syllable in writing, he reduces it in speaking to a thick triple consonant, grum. The American enunciates it clearly, rhyming it with damn. Or try the two with any word ending in G, 
say, sporting or ripping, or with any word having R before a consonant, say, card, harbor, lord, or preferred. The majority of Englishmen, says Menner, certainly do not pronounce the R. Just as certainly, the majority of educated Americans pronounce it distinctly. Henry James, visiting the United States after many years of residence in England, was much harassed by this persistent R sound, which seemed to him to resemble a sort of morose grinding of the back teeth. So sensitive to it did he become that he began to hear where it was actually non-existent, save as an occasional barbarism, for example, in Cuber, Vanillar, and California. He put the blame for it, and for various other departures from the strict canon of contemporary English, upon the American common school, the American newspaper, and the American Dutchman and Dago. Unluckily for his case, the full voicing of the R came into American long before the appearance of any of these influences. The early colonists, in fact, brought it with them from England, and it still prevailed there in Dr. Johnson's day, for he protested publicly against the rough, snarling sound, and led the movement which finally resulted in its extinction. Today, extinct, it is mourned by English purists, and the poet laureate denounces the clergy of the established church for saying, the sod of the laud, instead of the sword of the lord. But even in the matter of elided consonants, American is not always the conservator. We cling to the R. We preserve the final G. We give nephew a clear F sound instead of the clouded English V sound. And we boldly nationalize trait and pronounce its final T. But we drop the second P from pumpkin and change the M to N. We change the F sound to plain P in diphtheria, diphthong, and naphtha. We relieve rind of its final D, and in the complete sentence, we slaughter consonants by assimilation. I have heard Englishmen say brand new, but on American lips, it is almost invariably brand new. So nearly universal is this nasalization in the United States that certain American lexicographers have sought to found the term upon bran and not upon brand. Here, the national speech is powerfully influenced by southern dialectical variations, which in turn probably derive partly from French example and partly from the linguistic limitations of the Negro. The latter, even after 200 years, has great difficulties with our consonants and often drops them. A familiar anecdote well illustrates his speech habit. On a train stopping at a small station in Georgia, a darkie threw up a window and yelled, Wee! The reply from a black on the platform was, Wee! A northerner aboard the train, puzzled by this inarticulate dialogue, 
sought light from a southern passenger who promptly translated the first question as, Where is he? and the second as, Where is who? A recent viewer with alarm argues that this conspiracy against the consonants is spreading and that English printed words no longer represent the actual sounds of the American language. Like the French, he says, we have a marked liaison, the borrowing of a letter from the preceding word. We invite one another to come here, come here. Who's that? Who is that? has as good a liaison as the French voix avez. This critic believes that American tends to abandon T for D, as in Saturday, Saturday, and sit up, sit up, and to get rid of H, as in where's he, where is he. But here we invade the vulgar speech, which belongs to the next chapter. Among the vowels, the most salient difference between English and American pronunciation, of course, is marked off by the flat American A. This flat A, as we have seen, has been under attack at home for nearly a century. The New Englanders, very sensitive to English example, substitute a broad A that is even broader than the English, and an A of the same sort survives in the South in a few words. Example, master, tomato, and tassel. But everywhere else in the country, the flat A prevails. Fashion and the example of the stage oppose it, and it is under the ban of an active wing of schoolmasters, but it will not down. To the average American, indeed, the broad A is a banner of affectation, and he associates it unpleasantly with spats, Harvard, male tea-drinking, wristwatches, and all the other objects of his social suspicion. He gets the flat sound, not only into such words as last, calf, dance, and pastor, but even into piano and drama. Drama is sometimes drama, west of Connecticut, but almost never drama or drama. Tomato, with the A of bat, may sometimes borrow the A of plate, but tomato is confined to New England and the South. Hurrah, in American, has also borrowed the A of plate. One hears hooray much oftener than hurrah. Even amen frequently shows that A though not when sung. Curiously enough, it is displaced in patent by the true flat A. The English rhyme the first syllable of the word with rate. In America, it always rhymes with rat. The broad A is not only almost extinct outside of New England, it begins to show signs of decay even there. At all events, it has gradually disappeared from many words and is measurably less sonorous in those in which it survives than it used to be. A century ago, it appeared not only in dance, aunt, gloss, past, etc., but also in Daniel, imagine, rational, and travel. And in 1857, 
Oliver Wendell Holmes reported it in Matter, Handsome, Caterpillar, Apple, and Satisfaction. It has been displaced in virtually all of these, even in the most remote reaches of the back country, by the national flat A. Grandgent says that the broad A is now restricted in New England to the following situations. 1. When followed by S or NS, as in lost and dance. 2. When followed by R, preceding another consonant, as in cart. 3. When followed by LM, as in calm. 4. When followed by F, S, or TH, as in laugh, pass, and path. The U sound also shows certain differences between English and American usage. The English reduce the last syllable of figure to ger. The educated American preserves the U sound as in nature. The English make the first syllable of courteous rhyme with fort. The American standard rhymes it with hurt. The English give an oo sound to the U of brusque. In America, the word commonly rhymes with tusk. A U sound, as everyone knows, gets into the American pronunciation of clerk by analogy with insert. The English cling to a broad A sound by analogy with hearth. Even the latter, in the United States, is often pronounced to rhyme with dearth. The American, in general, is much less careful than the Englishman to preserve the shadowy Y sound before U in words of the Duke class. He retains it in few, but surely not in new nor in duke, blue, stew, do, duty, and true, nor even in Tuesday. Purists often attack the simple oo sound. In 1912, for example, the Department of Education of New York City warned all the municipal high school teachers to combat it. But it is doubtful that one pupil in a hundred was thereby induced to insert the Y in induced. Finally, there is lieutenant. The Englishman pronounces the first syllable left. The American invariably makes it lute. White says that the prevailing American pronunciation is relatively recent. I never heard it, he reports, in my boyhood. He was born in New York in 1821. The I sound presents several curious differences. The English make it long in all words of the hostile class. In America, it is commonly short, even in plural. The English also lengthen it in sliver. In America, the word usually rhymes with liver. The short I in England is almost universally substituted for the E in pretty. And this pronunciation is also inculcated in most American schools. But I often hear an unmistakable E sound in the United States 
making the first syllable rhyme with bet. Contrarywise, most Americans put the short I into bin, making it rhyme with sin. In England, it shows a long E sound, as in scene. A recent poem by an English poet makes the word rhyme with submarine, queen, and unseen. The O sound in American tends to convert itself into an aw sound. Cog still retains a pure O, but one seldom hears it in log or dog. Henry James denounces this flatly drawling group in The Question of Our Speech and cites God, Dog, Soft, Loft, Gone, Lost, and Frost as horrible examples. But the English themselves are not guiltless of the same fault. Many of the accusations that James levels at American, in truth, are echoed by Robert Bridges in a tract on the present state of English pronunciation. Both spend themselves upon opposing what, at bottom, are probably natural and inevitable movements. For example, the gradual decay of all the vowels to one of neutral color, represented by the E of danger, the U of suggest, the second O of common, and the A of prevalent, this decay shows itself in many languages. In both English and High German, during their middle periods, all the terminal vowels degenerated to E, now sunk to the aforesaid neutral vowel in many German words, and expunged from English altogether. The same sound is encountered in languages so widely differing otherwise as Arabic, French, and Swedish, its existence, says Sace, is a sign of age and decay. Meaning has become more important than outward form, and the educated intelligence no longer demands a clear pronunciation in order to understand what is said. All these differences between English and American pronunciation, separately considered, seem slight, but in the aggregate, they are sufficient to place serious impediments between mutual comprehension. Let an Englishman and an American, not of New England, speak a quite ordinary sentence. My aunt can't answer for my dancing the Lancers even passably. And at once, the gap separating the two pronunciations will be manifest. Here, only the A is involved. Add a dozen everyday words military, schedule, trait, hostile, bin, lieutenant, patent, nephew, secretary, advertisement, and so on, and the strangeness of one to the other is augmented. Every Englishman visiting the States for the first time, said an English dramatist some time ago, has a difficulty in making himself understood. He often has to repeat a remark or a request two or three times to make his meaning clear, especially on railroads, in hotels, and at bars. The American visiting England for the first time has the same trouble. 
despite the fact that American actors imitate English pronunciation to the best of their skill, this visiting Englishman asserted that the average American audience is incapable of understanding a genuinely English company, at least when the speeches are rattled off in conversational style. When he presented one of his own plays with an English company, he said, many American acquaintances, after witnessing the performance, asked him to lend them the manuscript, that they might visit it again with some understanding of the dialogue. End of chapter 5, part 6. Recording by Linda Johnson.